discussed. Uh, I was so thankful just singing through those songs and seeing so many different connections between what we were singing and what we find as we begin to really dive into the Mosaic Covenant and begin to, to think about its significance. You know, the, the Mosaic Covenant was such a massive, uh, massively important covenant because it directed the day-to-day life of every Israelite who lived under the Mosaic Covenant. Essentially, the Mosaic Covenant is the Old Testament law. And it dictated the way that the Israelites were to live day in and day out. And yet, it has been replaced. The Old Covenant, the Mosaic Covenant, has been replaced, which leads us to ask an important question. Why do we go through the hassle of replacing something? Right, this is important for us to think about. Let's say you're buying a new car. Why would you decide in the first place that you need to buy a new one? Why are you going to part ways with the old car and purchase the new car? Why would we do that? Why would you go into the store and exchange your old phone for the new one? Why would you go to the, to the dealership and exchange the old one for a new one? Trust me, new does not automatically mean better. Right? You can't tell me a 1967 Ford Mustang is not better than a 2019 Nissan Leaf. Like, that's going to be a very hard argument for you to make. I I don't think anyone in the right mind who owned a a 1967 Ford Mustang would go to the Nissan dealership and say, I want one of those, right, that little thing. No, it's not going to happen. So why is it that we replace something old with something new? Why do you go to the iPhone store and ask for the new one? Why do you go to to the microwave store, if that's a thing, and ask for a new microwave Why do you want to replace your old tools with a new tool set? Well, when we think about these sorts of questions, we need to come to the Bible and ask the same thing. Why has God replaced the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, with a new covenant? If you were here a few months back, we went through the book of Hebrews and we saw over and over again that God has decided to remove the old covenant and place and establish a new covenant over his people. I don't know if you remember this, but we, we talked about the, the, this transition from the old to the new covenant, and we compared it to iPhone updates. Remember this? Like when, when you get an iPhone update, sometimes you get it, and you look at it, and you go, you know what? I'm, I'm not even going to update my phone. I'm going to stick with the old, the old version. The old one was functioning just fine for me. I'm not going to, you know go through the, the potential, you know, data issues of, of getting a new iPhone uh, update uh, uh, system, because that might slow my phone down, right? But the new covenant software update is not something that is up for you to decide on, right? The biblical old covenant to new covenant transition, it's not optional, you do not have the ability to stay with the old covenant. You must move to the new. And so the the book of Hebrews makes this claim over and over and over again. The Mosaic covenant has been brought to an end. But why? What does that say about the old covenant? Was the old covenant a good thing? If so, why was it replaced? Was the old covenant a bad thing? If so, then why did God introduce it in the first place? Right? We can kind of feel this tension when we start to think about the covenant being replaced. You know, sometimes um, when we replace something, we don't do so because the old is bad and the new is good. Sometimes we replace something between, because the old is good, but the new is better. The new has an update that we need. The, the, the new is a better version of the old. It's not that the old is bad, it's just that the new is better. You know, it's not that every single time we need to replace a car, it's because the old car was bad. It's not as though every time we need to replace a microwave, it's because the old was bad. 
or the tools, right? It's not always because that old set was bad. Sometimes something that is good just needs to be replaced by something better. And this is important for us to realize, especially when we come to the Mosaic Covenant. We need to process this, right? Which category does this fall into? Is it a bad thing being replaced by something good? Or is this a good thing being replaced by something better? And so I just want to ask you, what is your initial reaction when you think about the Mosaic Law? When you think about the Old Testament laws, do you think of something that is positive, good, helpful, or do you think of something that is actually horrible, something bad, something that we need to get out from underneath? How do you tend to think about the Old Covenant? So with that in mind, that's a question that we're going to be assessing tonight. Is the law, is the Old Covenant a good thing? And then after we consider that, I think we have to have a follow-up question. What in the world do we as Christians do with this thing if it's already passed away? Right? Because we probably feel that as well as Christians. You open up your Old Testament and you're going, okay, so I've read the book of Hebrews. I've read Galatians. I understand the fact that the Old Covenant is no longer in play So what do I do with all this then? What do I do when I read through Leviticus or when I read through Deuteronomy? What do I even do with all this stuff? Is it just useless, null and void, or is it helpful? So those are the two questions that I want to ask. But before we get there, we do need to discuss what what the Old Covenant actually is. Like what was the Old Covenant? So here's where we're going to go tonight. First, we're going to look at what the Mosaic Covenant actually is. Then we're going to ask the question, was it a good thing? And then third, we're going to ask, how in the world, as Christians, do we approach the Old Covenant? What do we do with it? So, as I've pointed out multiple times already, we, uh, in the last weeks, we are going over this series in the workbook. So if you're in a small group, you're going through this in your small group. If you're here on Sundays, you're hearing this on Sundays. Uh, So I'm trying to go in a different direction. But on Sunday and in the workbook, we have discussed what the Mosaic Covenant actually is. So here, I'm just going to give a very like cursory overview. I'm not going to spend a ton of time diving into what the Old Covenant actually was. I just want to give an overview. So with that said, the covenant shows up in two specific places. The, the technical covenant of the, the Old Covenant, sometimes it's referred to, sometimes the entire Old Testament is called the law. Sometimes the, the books of Genesis through, through Deuteronomy are called the law. But technically, when you actually boil down where does the covenant really show up, it shows up in two places. It shows up in Exodus chapters 19 through 24, and then it's repeated in more of an extended sort of way in the book of Deuteronomy. So those are the two different places where we see it. So let's start with Exodus. I just want to highlight what happens in this narrative. So if you would, open up your Bibles. Um, I'm going to be kind of bouncing around from Exodus 19 through 24. So just open up anywhere in that ballpark. And then I'll kind of point you in the direction that I'm going as we get to the different passages. So let me just give an overview of what's happening here. In chapter 19 of Exodus, Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and he receives the covenant from Yahweh. The Lord gives Moses the covenant. Then he comes down from Mount Sinai. He comes down to the people in chapters 20 through 23 and he gives the people the covenant. So he gets the covenant. He comes down. He gives the covenant And essentially, when you look at the covenant, it's kind of divided into two parts. You have chapter 20, where the Ten Commandments are, and then you have chapters 21 to 23. And essentially, in 21 through 23, what you have is kind of an application. Here's how the Ten Commandments apply to, like, everyday circumstances, everyday life. So 
kind of think of the, the covenant in those two sorts of ways. There's the 10 words, the 10 commandments, and then there's an application. Here's how the 10 commandments work in everyday life. Then we get to chapter 24. So remember, Moses goes up, he gets the covenant, he comes down, he gives the covenant. Now in 24, the covenant is being confirmed. This is where Moses calls out to the people. He, he, he tells them, here's the covenant that God has given you. Now look in chapter 24 at verses three through four. This is, in, this is really significant for us to see. Moses came and he told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered him with one voice. And they said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Okay, so I'm gonna hit on this timeline again. Moses goes up, he gets a covenant. He comes back, he gives the covenant now to the Israelites. And now here we have the people agreeing to it, saying, okay, yes, Moses, we heard that. We agree to it. We are in covenant now with the Lord. Now, when you go to chapter 25, Moses goes back up the mountain. So he says, okay, we're in covenant. I'm going to go back up the mountain. He goes back on top of the mountain and he gets the 10 commandments written on stone. And when we start to read through uh, chapters 25 to 31, we see that literally it says the hand of God, the finger of God wrote the 10 commandments on those two tablets. So Moses comes down with these two tablets. On these two tablets are written the 10 commandments. And this is 32 now. So in chapter 32, turn there. This is that famous moment when Israel decides to serve a golden calf. So again, I can't, I can't not emphasize the timeline here. He gets the covenant. He gives the covenant. The people agree to the covenant. Moses goes back up to get the, the 10 commandments on these two tablets. And as he comes down the mountain, the people of Israel are worshiping a golden calf. So he comes down and he finds himself utterly perturbed with what's going on. Look at chapter 32, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the same people who just agreed with Yahweh, yes, we are in covenant with you. When they saw that Moses delayed, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, get up. Or just up, (laughs) right? They're just commanding him, get up, make us gods who we shall go or who shall go before us. I mean, it took all of 10 minutes for the nation of Israel to break God's covenant. They heard it. They agreed to it. Moses goes up to get the 10 commandments. He comes back down and they're at the base of the mountain worshiping an idol. And notice, when this takes place, they aren't just breaking the covenant, they're breaking the very first commandment in the covenant. You shall not make, uh, or, or you shall not have any gods before me. So they've broken the first commandment. They've also broken the second commandment. You shall not have any carved images for yourself. So, it doesn't take that very long, that, that long, but within a moment now, they've broken the first two commandments. The covenant is broken. Moses comes down and in, in like a fit of rage, he throws the tablets on the ground and they just shatter. And then he goes and he takes this golden calf, he melts it down into liquid form and he starts passing it around the camp of Israel saying, drink it. Drink it as a sign of judgment. So they're drinking their golden calf now. Okay, so God judges Israel for this. This group of Israelites, they don't enter into the promised land. Remember the promised land that God promised Abraham? This group of people, they never enter into the land. In fact, God tells them, for 40 years, you are now going to wander around the desert and you're never going to make it to the promised land. Fast forward 40 years, that's what happened. Now comes the next generation of Israelites. These are the children of the calf worshipers. 
who had to drink their, wor- their, their golden idol. Uh, these are the children now standing on the edge of the promised land. And Moses comes to them and he gives them the book of Deuteronomy. So the entire book of Deuteronomy is essentially Exodus 19 to 24 in expanded form. In expanded form. So here we have the covenant laid out again. Again, it's set up similarly. You have the Ten Commandments brought up in chapter uh, five or six, I'm blanking. And then the rest of the book essentially is an explanation on how those Ten Commandments apply to life. So there's a lot more we can say, but that's just a general overview of where the covenant shows up, what's going on, the context behind the covenant. Like I said, you hopefully have the workbook you can go online if you weren't there on Sunday and listen to the message uh, from Sunday and kind of get uh, some greater insights on what's going on in Exodus and in Deuteronomy. Um, but now I want to jump to a different question. I want to ask the question, is the law a good thing? Was the law a good thing? Remember, Hebrews points out over and over again that the new covenant has been replaced by the old covenant. And now that the new covenant is in place, the old one is no longer in effect. It's finished, right? It's out of, out of operation, no longer in operation. It's no longer in business. So does that mean that the law was bad? You know, some Christians think so. Some Christians will say that the law was a bad thing, right? We got Jesus now. We don't need that, that old thing that was just... A, 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 a bad thing. It was, it was damning to us. Thankfully, we don't need it anymore. And reading the New Testament, you can come across some passages which make you almost think that. So, I mean, Galatians. Turn, turn now to Galatians. We're going to spend most of the, the rest of the night in the New Testament. Um, so, if you turn to Galatians chapter 3, you get here and you start thinking, okay, Paul, you didn't seem to have that positive of a view regarding the law. What's what's going on here? Chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? In other words, words, what Paul is doing here is he's, he's pointing out that this church in Galatia, they have begun to, to go backwards and go back to the law. So there, uh, notice what, what Paul is saying. He's saying, who has bewitched you? Who has bewitched you? Why is it that you're going back? Did you receive the Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit through faith or by obeying the Mosaic law? I mean, hearing this, you're kind of thinking, well, Paul doesn't seem to like the law very much. Right? He's calling the Galatians for foolish for even trying to keep it. But is that what is going on? Is Paul actually saying that the law was a bad thing? No. He's not. Paul is actually saying that trying to be justified by the law is a bad thing. The law itself was not a bad thing. It's trying to use the law in an inappropriate way. You see, the law itself is not bad. It's bad only when you use it incorrectly. You see, when we start to do a survey of Scripture, Old and New Testament, we see over and over again that the law is actually good. Psalm 119. This is the longest psalm in the Bible. It's the longest chapter in the Bible. uh, The most verses in one chapter in the entire Bible. Um, And this psalm, over and over and over again, is about the goodness of God's law. Essentially, every one of the hundred and something verses in this psalm are all about the goodness of God's law. So look at verses 14 through 16, if you're there. If not, I can just read them. Don't worry about it. Um, I don't want you guys jumping around too much. So in verses 14 through 16, Psalm 119. In the way of your testimonies, I delight. In other words, in the way of your law, your commands, your decrees, I delight as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts. 
and fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. So notice this. In these three verses, God's law, God's word is alluded to in five different ways. In three different verses. Here the psalmist is saying that he delights in God's law as much as he delights in all riches. Even even if you compare God's word to all riches in the world, I'm choosing God's law. Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. The law is filled with wondrous things. On and on this psalm goes, speaking about the goodness of God's word. Well, when we go to the New Testament, we actually see the same thing over and over again, especially in Paul and in Jesus. The law is held up as something good. First Timothy chapter one, verses eight through 11. Now we know that the law is good, but notice the caveat here. If one uses it lawfully, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and the profane. And he goes on and on and on about who the law is for. You see, this is in line with what we saw earlier. The issue is that some people seek to use the law incorrectly. That's exactly what was going on in the Galatian church. They were seeking to justify themselves with the law. Paul is saying here that the law was not intended for that. That wasn't the point of the law. Which begins to bring us into a a new territory. What actually was the point of the law then? If the law is good, but the law was not meant to justify us, then what was the point of the law? The law was given so that we might come to recognize that we cannot walk in holiness. That's why God gave us the law. God gave us the law so that we might come to realize our desperate need for a savior. That's why God gave us the law, to point out our desperate neediness, to show us our lack of goodness. The law is good because it shows you and me our lack of goodness. That's what God gave us the law for. The Mosaic law helps us to see that we need someone to come and rescue us from ourselves. We need someone to come and rescue us from our weaknesses. That's what the law was intended to do. That was the purpose of God's law. You see, if we want to understand why God's law is good, then we need to understand what its actual purpose is. If you want to understand why God's law is actually good, you need to understand its purpose. Okay, another verse. I'm sorry, but Romans 7. This, we're going to camp here for at least one page of my notes. So, we should go there. Romans 7. Uh, Romans 7 is extremely important because this, this chapter is talking about the point of the law. Right? Chapter 6 shows us that we are free from sin. And then it's like Paul goes, okay, so if we're free from sin now, then what is the point of the law? If the law was to demonstrate that we are sinful and we're now free from sin, then what role does the law have now? So look at Romans 7, verse 7. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. So that's in line with what Paul was saying in 1 Timothy 1. The point of the law is to point out our sinfulness. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Right? As Paul begins to to explore the motivations in his own heart, he doesn't even know what's going on until the law tells him what's going on. Right? He doesn't even understand the covetousness coming from his own heart until God comes to him and says, you know what that is right there? 
that is your covetousness, right? That's pretty fascinating to think about. You would not even understand the sin reigning in your body, reigning in your heart, if it was not for God coming to you and pointing into your heart and saying, you know what that is? That's hatred. You know what that is? That's bitterness. Without God's law, we would have no clue what was happening in our hearts. And so the law is actually a good thing. It comes to us and convicts us and shows us the sin of our hearts. You see, the law intends to show us what God calls us to do. The law demonstrates our sinful behavior and it shows us our distance from God. We see this again in verse 13 and verse 14. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. I really want to point out verse 14 there. Notice how significant that is. He's saying the law is spiritual. Have you thought of the law in that way? I mean, personally, I don't necessarily think of the law that way. I think of the law as like this code that that has no ability to to possess or, or to address spiritual realities. But he's saying, no, the law is spiritual. I am sold under the flesh. You see, the problem is not the law. The problem is you and the problem is me. There wasn't any problem with the law. The problem was the sin that we brought to the law. You see the same thing here. The law shows our sinfulness. The law leaves us asking the question that we see in verse 24. Verse 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? That's what the law is intended to do. The law is intended to bring each and every one of us to a place where we're left crying out, God, who, who can save me? Who can save me from my wretched heart? Who is able to rescue me from the depths of my own sin? That's what the law is intended to do, to bring you to your knees begging God for his salvation because you begin to recognize more and more the more you read the law that you are incapable of entering into God's presence apart from him stepping in and allowing you in by his grace. The law leads us to plead with God for his help, plead with him for his grace. So if the law was good, why did it need to be replaced? It needed to be replaced because God intended to do something better. Like I said, this isn't an upgrade from something bad to something good. This is an upgrade from something good to something far better, far more superior. Jesus brings us the new covenant. Jesus kept the law. Like we read in in, in Come Behold the Wondrous Mystery, Jesus kept the law. He lived a perfect life. He lived perfect obedience underneath the law. And now, because of that, he is able to clothe us in the perfection that he attained through his life. That's what the new covenant is. Jesus living out the law perfectly and then coming to us and saying, that perfection that I just attained, it's yours. Now it's yours. It belongs to you through faith. You see, the, uh, the old covenant did not offer a way for us to gain the perfection it demanded from us. The law wasn't capable of doing that. That's not what it was intended to do. It wasn't intended to give us the ability to keep its commands. And so it left us desperately needy. You see, the new covenant, we receive Jesus's righteousness, which means now we're able to come into God's presence. Through the law, we're just told, no, you can't come into my presence. Through Jesus, now we can enter into God's presence boldly because he obeyed the law for us. He attained holiness 
for us. He attained righteousness for us. And now we can come into God's presence declaring Jesus' holiness and say, I have a place here. I belong here. Not because of what I have done, but because of what Jesus has done. You see, the new covenant is better than the Mosaic covenant because it gives us the forgiveness that we need for not obeying the Mosaic covenant. The new covenant goes even further though. It doesn't just stop there. The new covenant goes further. It gives us the ability to obey God. Now, through the Spirit, we are given the ability to obey God. That's what the new covenant also does. So you can kind of think of the new covenant's accomplishments in two ways when compared to the Mosaic law. The new covenant comes, and now we have forgiveness We have Jesus' righteousness because he obeyed the law. But in addition to that, now we have the ability to obey God. Those are the two things that the new covenant comes and accomplishes for us. God gives us his Holy Spirit. If you are not a, a, a church person and you hear like the Holy Spirit, that can sound weird. I get that. Uh, the Holy Spirit, just, just so you know what we believe, the Holy Spirit is God himself coming to you to dwell within you. Again, if you're not a, not a Christian, you're not familiar with Christian like lingo, you might be hearing that and going, that is just weird. Like God, you guys believe that? Yes, we believe that. The Holy Spirit, God himself comes and dwells within us. And when he does that, he, he gives us the ability to obey God. We were incapable of obeying God before the Holy Spirit came into us. You see, the new covenant eliminates the entire concept of fleshly people trying to keep a spiritual law. The new covenant abolishes that entire concept. Now, under the new covenant, we have fleshly people becoming spiritual people so that they can obey a spiritual law. Jeremiah 31 is a promise of the new covenant. This is one of the most important passages in the Old Testament. It's a promise that God is going to come and make a new covenant with his people. And this is what it says, verse 31, Jeremiah 31, uh, verse 33, sorry. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. Isn't that interesting? Even in the new covenant, there is still room for a law. Some type of law. The law is still at play. We'll get to that in a moment. But notice that. God is going to put his law in us. He's going to write it, write it on the heart And then he says, I will be their God and they shall be my people. And when we begin to read Jeremiah 31, and when when we begin to read these other Old Testament passages on the new covenant, we begin to see very quickly what God is going to do is he is going to give us his spirit and then make us obedient. He's going to put his law within us. In other words, he's going to give us the ability to obey it. Right? The key here is that God will place his law in our hearts. He will give us his, his spirit and give us the ability to obey his law. You see, the, the law was not replaced because uh, uh, people, uh, or, or rather the law was replaced because it did not give people the ability to keep its commands. That's why the law was replaced. So God gave the new covenant, gives us forgiveness and it gives us the ability to keep God's commands. So let's transition now. What do Christians do with the law? Right, so we've seen the law is good. We've seen what the old covenant is. But now, as Christians, what do we even do with the law? What are we supposed to do with it? The old covenant is obsolete. So, how do we interact with the law when we come to it? I think this is more of a practical question. Like when you're, you're reading through Deuteronomy and you're reading some of these laws and you're going, what do I even do with that? When you go to Leviticus and you're reading about wearing clothing with two different types of fabrics interwoven and, and that's prohibited and you're just like, what? I, I don't even know what to do with this. So this is really more of a practical question. What do we do with the law? How do, we, how do we handle it? 
now that it has been replaced. I think there are all sorts of different opinions on this. There are some people who are on one side of the spectrum. They're on one extreme. There are other people on other extremes. I think there are really two separate extremes here. Both of them are very dangerous. I I like watching uh, GoPro videos on like YouTube. I don't know if you guys like that kind of stuff, but uh, there is one, uh, there's a mountain biker named Danny uh, Macaskill, and he goes to uh, this this mountain ridge, uh, and the video is called The Ridge, just called The Ridge, and it, it has Danny Macaskill. He's like this super technical BMX rider, but it's it's in Europe. I think it's in like Scotland, but it's just this massive peak with this very narrow ridge uh, that, that goes across this, this huge peak. And this guy gets the idea, I'm going to ride my bike across that, that peak, right? And so he has a GoPro on his helmet, and he's like looking down at this little ridge. And what you can tell by looking at this video is that on one side of him, like on his right, is hundreds and hundreds of feet, just like vertical drop. It's just a cliff. Rocks at the bottom, right? On his left, it's just vertical drop, hundreds and hundreds of feet. And he's on his bike, right? This is not a mountain bike trail. This is like a hiking trail for people who are crazy. And this guy's on his bike on this hiking trail. And he's like doing bunny hops because it's like, it's a technical trail to hike. And so he's like up there, like bouncing, like from one spot on the ridge to another, because like it takes skill just to walk the thing. And he's doing it on his bicycle, right? And I don't know about you, but like this is one of those videos where you watch it. I'm not even really all that afraid of heights, and I'm like getting sweaty palms, right? I'm just like, I cannot watch this. This guy is going to die, like certainly going to die. Um, in a lot of ways, Christians can come to the law, and there are extremes like that. On one side, just a cliff. And if you f- go onto that extreme, you're just you're asking for death. On the other side, a cliff. And you're asking for, for death. You're entering into dangerous territories. And so as Christians, we actually have a, a difficult task. We need to approach the law correctly. Because if you fall on one side of the equation too far, if you're too radical on one side of the equation, you're falling to, to your death, like spiritual death. And so there are two extremes. So let me just paint these two extremes. Some Christians say that we are still responsible to keep the Mosaic law in its entirety. We need to keep the Mosaic law. And so that's what was happening in the Galatian church, right? That's what was happening. That's why Paul was so severe. Who has bewitched you? Are you so foolish, right? He's using the strongest of language because they are falling victim to the teaching that they need to add works of the law in order to be saved. In other words, they need to obey the law. And we see this is a major issue throughout the New Testament. We see it in Romans. We see it in Galatians. We see it in Ephesians. Uh, It comes up over and over again. And we'll see this even today, especially some of the cults. As you interact with cults and you begin to realize they believe that you need to keep the law in order to be saved, in order to be a true Christian Right, and you'll you'll hear some who they may not be all the way off the ledge, but you're listening to them and you're going, That sounds weird, right? They're advocating that we we obey all of the commands that we we practice and, and celebrate the festivals. Like if we want to be true Christians, we need to be like the Jews and celebrate the, the Jewish festivals and you're sitting there going, you know, that just sounds off. There's something off about that. Ultimately, what's going on is they're going back to the law and they're seeking to obey the law as a means of approaching God through the law of Moses. That's one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum, this is maybe more prevalent in uh, Christian circles in America. It's the idea that the law is not for us. God's law is not for us in any way, shape, or form today as Christians. I think this is what Paul is addressing in Romans 6 when Paul says, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? In other words, 
we can't come to God saying, obedience does not matter. That's the other side of the the spectrum here. That's the other extreme. The people will argue that as Christians, we have no responsibility for obedience. The law is not for us. It's not intended for us. And therefore we don't need to obey. We just have grace. We have Christ. When you start to hear that sort of language, they're falling off the cliff on the other side. Right? These two extremes are are the two sides of the path that we're trying to walk down. So is there a better way? Is there a better way for us than these two extremes? I think there is. I think the New Testament really helps us to understand how to find this balance between these two extremes. So with With that said, I want to spend the rest of the night thinking about how we, as Christians, should view the Mosaic Covenant. Should we obey it at all? If it's been replaced, then what do we do with it? So I I think there are really two important, uh, I guess you could say principles. There are two ways to, to really know how we ought to handle the law. They're written on the notes. The first is try to seek any sort of New Testament reiteration of the law. So if you're reading through the law, you come across a a command. If it's reiterated in the new covenant, then yeah, you obey that. That's pretty straightforward, right? That, That doesn't require much explanation. If a law in the Old Testament is repeated in the New Testament, you obey that. It's, it's straightforward. As Christians, here's where it gets a little more technical. We have a new law as Christians. We are not obedient to the Mosaic law. Now we are obedient to the law of Jesus. You'll hear it called the law of Christ sometimes. The law of Christ is the New Testament commands we read from from Matthew to Revelation. This is the law of Jesus, the law of Christ. We are called to obey the law of Christ. And within the law of Christ, by and large, you just have the Old Testament repeated. There are not new commands commands coming in the new covenant morally. They're not new moral commands coming in the New Testament. It's essentially the old covenant repeated. For example, uh, in the book of Matthew, we're about to go through a series on the Sermon on the Mount. After this, we're going to be going through the Sermon on the Mount, which is uh, a section in the book of Matthew where Jesus comes and he begins to explain the law to his hearers. So that's essentially what he's going through. He's going through the Old Testament law and he's explaining it. And he's, he's giving New Testament commands from the Old Testament. And so here in these few chapters, he tells us not to commit adultery. He tells us not to murder. He tells us not to lie. All three of those, they're part of the Ten Commandments. He tells us not to worry, not to place our trust in money. Right? All of these commands are found scattered throughout the Mosaic Covenant. So Jesus is repeating them. But... I need to point out that when we go to the New Testament and we start to see old covenant laws, old Mosaic Testament, uh, uh, Mosaic laws repeated in the new covenant, they're always heightened. Most, most of the time, at least. At least here in the Sermon on the Mount, that's what's going on. These laws come to the church, but now they're, they're more substantial. They're not less substantial under Jesus They're more substantial. And so when we read through Matthew 5, we see things like this in verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. Again, this is one of the Ten Commandments. But then in verse 22, notice what Jesus Jesus does here. He says, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother is liable for judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Essentially, Jesus here is saying, you guys are concerned with murder, and I'm telling you there's something far more deep-seated in your hearts that you need to deal with. And it's just as serious as murder. Yes, murder is damning, but you need to be concerned with what's going on in your heart. Do you hate that person? you might as well have already murdered them in your heart. So Jesus goes to the motivation level. He's not just dealing with what you're doing on the outside in the outward realm. He's dealing with the heart. 
He's going towards the heart matters. And we'll see that when we go through the uh, Sermon on the Mount in a few weeks. So Jesus is taking Old Testament commands and he's heightening them. You see, we have a greater calling as Christians to God's law because we're no longer under the Mosaic Covenant. Now we're under Jesus' law. And Jesus' law is actually greater than the Mosaic Covenant and its demands. You know, when you start to read through the New Testament, you realize, you know what? We have a, a massively greater task than they had under the Old Covenant because our calling is to love people like Jesus loved them. Just think of that for a moment. If you are a Christian, your calling is to love people like Jesus loved them. And start to think about the ways Jesus loved. He sacrificed to the point of death. He sacrificed to the point of death. He bore our burdens. Philippians 2, it reminds us of this reality. Every command that we have has to be rooted in the love of Jesus. So we are imitating Jesus' love, and that's what Paul does in Philippians 2. He says, have the same mind as that of Jesus, who laid down his life to the point of death, even death on a cross. So Paul is saying, our calling is not just don't hate people, it's not just serve people, it's serve people to the point of death. (laughs) Die to yourself in the way that you love others. That, brothers and sisters, is a far higher calling than what we find in the Mosaic Covenant. We have a tall order. But thankfully, like we already discussed, we have the Holy Spirit who gives us the ability to obey Christ. Now, there's another way that we can apply the Old Testament as Christians. And this is what it is. We must ask what principles in the Old Covenant, align with the law of Jesus. This is a little, a little more difficult uh, to explain, but I, I think you guys will follow. So not every Old Testament command is repeated in the New Testament. And some of those commands, I would say, in principle, are still binding, even though they're not repeated in the New Testament. So we need to be looking at the principle. What is the principle going on in this law that may still be binding, even if like the command itself is not at play still? So I think this is easier to explain through an through like an illustration, through an uh, an actual example. So Jason Meyer he he points out Deuteronomy twenty two eight as an example of finding the principle without actually having to obey the the details of the law. So. I think this will be helpful. Deuteronomy 22.8. When you build a new house, you shall make a parapet for your roof. So the first thing we need to figure out, what in the world is a parapet? If we want to keep this law, I need to know what a parapet is, right? And then it says this, that you may not bring the guilt of blood upon your house if anyone shall fall from it. So you're going, okay, I don't even know what a parapet is, but I need to obey this law. Well, first we need to figure that out. A parapet is a fence. So you need to build a fence on your roof. Thankfully, this is not a a lasting command. I just bought a home. There's no fence on the roof. Thankfully, I, I don't need to go up on my roof and start building a fence, right? Thankfully. However, there is... a a principle here that is helpful for us. So when we start to think about what's going on in in Israel, they would often have like parties essentially on their roofs. Their roofs were flat. Their roofs uh, were were an open air space to have people, to have guests. And so the command here is because you have people on your roof, because you guys will have parties on your roof, because you'll have barbecues and things like that, you need to set up fences on your roof. You need to set up a wall of sorts so that people aren't going to fall off your wall. And then you're held responsible because you, you didn't take care of your guests, right? You didn't care for people who were coming to your home by setting up parameters so that they didn't kill themselves, right? That's essentially what the law is. But 
as the people of God today, I think there's a, a great principle here for us. Even if we don't go onto our roofs and start building fences on top of our homes, right? We don't necessarily have people on our roofs to hang out. And yet, I think there's something that uh, is at play here. So let's imagine for a second that I had a pool in my backyard. Just imagine I had a pool in my backyard. I don't, thankfully. Uh, but let's imagine I did. I think this, this verse could tell us something about being a good pool owner, right? So let's just say my son Theo, who's a toddler, asks to have his toddler friends over my house... And uh, these toddlers come over and they start doing what toddlers do. They seek out danger. They explore ways to put themselves in horrible situations. That's exactly what toddlers do. So they go over to like tables. They try to find heavy objects and pull them on themselves. Right? They climb on top of the table and figure out whether or not they can just like jump off and survive. It's like all trial by error. Like, that's how they live their lives. So they, they have these, like, saliva-drenched fingers, and they're like, I'm going to just stick them into that power socket. Just see what happens. They love tools. They love saws. They love knives, right? They just, that's what they do. And they also love to find out whether or not they can swim. And so what typically happens is, like, naturally, the toddlers all go to the deep end, and they look in the deep end, and they say, let's see if I can figure this out. And they just jump in. And they're like, I'm going to see if I can get into this pool and figure this out. Right? They don't realize that, that pools are actually dangerous for people, especially toddlers who are like two feet tall, if they can't swim. They're stuck at the bottom, right? So the principle of this passage here in Deuteronomy would be put a fence around your pool as long as you're going to have these like danger-seeking toddlers coming over your house. That's the, the principle here. You can think of other ways in which like this verse would apply. There are other passages in the Old Testament I think that you can really think through. Okay, there's some, some helpful application here for us. Even today, that's, that's what we should do when we come to the, the Old Testament and we're reading through it. Is this passage saying something that's repeated in the New Testament? Or is this passage laying down a principle that we ought to still obey under the law of Christ. Because our goal as New Testament Christians is to love people the way that Christ loved them. And we need to get help from God so that we might know how we ought to do that. So that's our goal, to live out the law of Jesus. And thankfully, through the Spirit, we have the ability to do so. And thankfully, when we fail to keep God's law, we have Jesus and forgiveness. We have the ability to, to still approach God even though we fail to keep the law. So to close, I want us to go back to where we started. Is it a good thing that God has replaced the law? Yes. Not because the law was bad, but because the new covenant is so much better. It gives us the ability to obey God's law. It gives us the ability to find forgiveness when we fail to obey God's law. Let's pray.